Well, good morning, folks. And it is uh, indeed uh, a privilege. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Crocodile Dundee, but if you have, that's not a southern accent. This is a southern accent. Okay? Seriously. I got the... uh, I got the monopoly on southern accents. Well, before we get on away this morning, I just want to uh, just take a moment just to say what a privilege, what a privilege this is for me. Uh, we've been here since 2009, as Brian said, and you're our family since 2009. We moved from Australia, moved away from our family, we came here to this church, and just know that sometimes there's a strange-looking bald guy sort of up towards the back of the room looking around saying, this is my family. And... Uh, and I do, and uh, I really appreciate you, and that is why it is such an immense privilege to come and talk with you this morning about this subject, the church and science. And yeah, that's the subject I got. And so, you know, if there's, if there's anything that's going to bring out maybe uh, some areas of disagreement between some of us, it's probably going to be this one. You know, because we're dealing with things like the age of the earth and uh, evolution, millions of years, uh, the distant starlight from stars, the geological time scale, uh, fossils, dinosaurs, you know, all of those things. And they sometimes can cause a little bit of contention. And, uh, you know, uh, there are some pulpits around the, the nation that will say, no, you're not going to do that, do that topic in this pulpit because this is a divisive issue. Now, I just want to tell you that I don't believe that there is actually anything such as a divisive issue, only really divisive people. Um, In fact, since I've been here in uh, in America, there's there's a saying that I've heard a lot that I hardly ever heard when I was in Australia, because it was was hardly even an issue in Australia. But I've heard it, you know, every second day here in America, and it goes something like this. Guns don't kill people, people kill people. Right? (laughs) And, and by the way, <laughs> you, don't, you don't all sound like that. Well, Brian does. But, you, I mean, seriously, how do you put two syllables into every word? That is a gift, dude. That really is. So, anyway. Anyway. But it's true, isn't it, that uh, we have people behind guns pulling the trigger. There's some truth to that statement, no matter how it's said. And... You know, it's just the same thing, that that we are people and we're dealing with an issue. Issues aren't divisive. People can be divisive and we need to be careful about that. So if there is some disagreement in this, even with me or with anybody else, let's do something. Let's just commit to something right now that we're going to understand that our unity is in Jesus. Now, when our unity is in Jesus, it means it's in him and everything in him, in all of his word from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Because his word isn't just the red ones, right? It's not just the red letters in the Bible. And the other thing is, is that the strength of that unity finds its greatest pinnacle in the cross of Christ. And so, you know, if somebody comes to me and says, I'm going to disagree with you about this, well, I'm probably going to, if I don't know them, I'm probably going to say, well, let's talk about how you came to know the Lord and let's share our testimonies with each other. And, and then let's open up his word and see what he has to say about this because it really doesn't matter what I think or what you think. It matters what Christ thinks. Yeah? Because it, it is a matter of authority at the end of the day. It, it really is. And that's why, by the way, in your bulletins, the first thing that I have written in there is uh, Grace Fellowship's doctrine of creation that you find in their position statements. Now, when Trish and I and the family were looking for a church, uh, and by the way, we didn't look. We came here the first Sunday and said we found it and we stayed and we said we've really found it. And, and I can tell you now that we've really, really, really found it. Um, <laughs> 
you know, I mean, you're beautiful, you're messed up, but you're beautiful people in Jesus. And so am I, it's okay. But in Jesus, we're beautiful. And it's, it's just amazing, uh, the, the wonderful blessing that you have all been to us and this, this congregation has been to us. But as we're going through and looking at this, we realized that, that this creation statement says something about this church. It actually says that they're actually interested in the authority of the Word of God. You know, they, they put in things like God created the world in six literal days and use Exodus 20, 11 to talk about that, 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 you know, in the Sabbath week, there's six days and one day for the Sabbath, which is a representation of the creation week of six normal days and one day of rest. And they're not leaving room for millions of years or evolution or anything like that. They're saying we're willing to go on the authority of the word of God here. And when we looked at that, we, said, we, we thought, you know, we should expect to see that this church is going to be fairly strong on the authority of the Word of God in a lot of other areas. And my goodness, the pulpit preaching is strongly that way. Um, the ministry, the biblical counseling, it's all about the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God, isn't it? And so you see these things coming through this church, and maybe the pastors can't say it, but I, as one of you can, I thank God for it. I really do. But in saying that, we're looking at this subject. So that's for you to read later and have a look. And after you've heard this sermon, maybe go back and have another look at it and read it. And, and you can thank God a little bit more for this type of statement that, that we're making. As to, hey, God's word is trust, trustworthy. It's, it's faithful. You know, he's faithful. But as we, as we see this, we also realize that this whole series is asking the question, is the church a fading fad? Is it obsolete? That's, that's really the question that we're asking. And I did a little bit of research on this and found that in 2013, there was some research done in this uh, aspect of the church, uh, and it was research about the acceptance of the philosophies of science that are affecting the church. So how are those, how are those philosophies of science accepted into the church? And, and they found that there's well, well, uh, a worldwide acceptance in, in generality and... They said that as people accept more of the philosophies of science, the church becomes uh, less important, less relevant, and that by 2041, they said it could be that the church is becoming obsolete. And they published these research findings, and there's one, um, <clears throat> there's one that I found in the, in the Huffington Post, and it was representative of, of other articles, and its title was, Religion Becoming Obsolete? It Could Happen. So out of all of the, all of the sermon series that we've, we've had so far, this, this sermon in this series, you know, you've got actual research happening about that subject. And it said this, science is seen as a threat and is often not welcome in the religious debate. Scientists, agnostics and atheists are savagely attacked for having the audacity to question the beliefs of people living their lives through blind faith. People living their lives through blind faith. Blind faith. You see, what they're really saying is this. There is the science community who are getting into the real stuff. You know, they're digging into the dirt and they're looking at fossils and they're doing the real stuff. And then there's the religious community that have got whatever book they're using and they, they dump Christians in with that and it's all based on fable and fairy tale and myth and from ancient documents. And, and so, you know, you've got your belief systems but we've got the real thing. We've got science, you've got faith. And so... 
it's a, it's a problem. It's either faith or science. There's this, like, like this great divide. And then because of that and because of the rhetoric that is used and the intimidation that many of us feel about it, we're asking the question, is there really a conflict between science and the church, between science and the Bible? And I want to put to you right from the very start of this message that I don't believe that it is a conflict. I believe once we understand the definitions of the issue, we realize it's not a conflict, it's just confusion. And you eradicate confusion, you get rid of the confusion, you're going to find confirmation of Scripture. And that's where I want to get to this morning. It's not about conflict, it's actually about confusion. Getting rid of the confusion shows the confirmation. And that's where we need to go. But I do understand and I sympathise, I really honestly do sympathise with many of you who find this issue difficult and hard and somewhat intimidating because some of those questions aren't that easy to answer, are they? You think about some of the questions that come to us. How did the, the light from distant stars get here? What, what is uh, the issue with the geological time scale? And how old are those fossils? And uh, how old are those rock layers? And how did, how did all the variations of all the different types of biological life uh, get here and arrive in all of their variations? How, how old is the Earth? And, and what about dinosaurs? And what about evolution? And what about millions of years? And we're asking all of these questions, and some of us just go, wow, I don't know how to... And our mind is absolutely blown in saying, how are we going to answer this? And how are we going to see that the church isn't actually a fading fad? And we're, we're confused and intimidated. How many of you have seen the Ghostbusters movie? Okay. There's something strange in the neighbourhood. Who are you going to call? Okay, you got it, right? You know. Why did I do that? It's because, oh, there's something strange and I don't understand it and I don't really know how to answer it, but let's give it to somebody else to deal with. Let's call the Ghostbusters. They're going to come in and do it. There's no such thing as ghosts. Well, there is the Holy Ghost. But there is no such thing, so don't worry about it. But what am I saying? I'm saying this, that it, this is an issue that it's too often easy for us to just, you know, um, you pass the football this way. Pass the football, Right? and give it to somebody else. And I come from Answers in Genesis. I, I come from the, that parachurch organisation that is there to, to help people with these answers. And sometimes it's like that. It's churches say, oh, you know what, this is too hard for me, but hey, there are organisations that deal with that. Go to Answers in Genesis. Go to Institute for Creation Research. And I, I want to ask you to think about that because my first point here is that the church has been given the responsibility to unite in the defense of scripture. The church has, not the parachurch organization, the church, not Answers in Genesis. It's not Answers in Genesis' responsibility to deal with these questions. It's the church's. Now, I am very privileged to, deal, to be working in an organization that wants to help the church to answer the questions that they're responsible for, but it's not my responsibility when I'm in that organization. It's my responsibility when I'm part of this fellowship. Yeah? And we need to understand that. So we need to take on that responsibility. Okay, well, I can't just pass the buck, but I can use them to get equipped to help myself do, do it. And that's what we've all got to do. Please work me out of a job. I really want you to. And, and I want to remind us of the verses that Peter used in the very first sermon of this series because he was reminding us of the place of the church in its responsibility of defending and contending for the faith. In scripture. And let's just go through them. I'm just going to run through these pretty quickly. Jude 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, 
I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's delivered to the saints. It's delivered to us. It's delivered to those who are in Christ. Okay, this is the church that, uh, that Jude is, is talking about. And the faith, the faith, is delivered to them. It's not just talking about your individual faith here. It's talking about the faith, the tenets of the Christian faith. That, that all of those books, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, that point very solidly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. Right? The faith. And so it's our responsibility to contend for the faith. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, in you, in, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here, here is where it's the individual. This is the faith that is in you. This is your faith. You need to give defences and answers for your faith in the faith. And so, folks, uh, this is your responsibility, our responsibility, that we are to answer questions about our faith where we see that the absolute assurance of hope that we have in the Word of God telling us about our future in Jesus Christ, we need to be able to defend that hope. And 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay, you know how one ought to behave in the household of God. What is the household of God? Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. And Peter talked about the, the foundation, often you see in the ruins only the foundations, that, that, that buttress and the, and, and the pillar is, is left, the strength. And, and we are the strength, we are the, the protectors and the preservers of, of good doctrine in, in the scriptures and we want to do that and we've seen the councils and the creeds uh, throughout the ages that, that have, have stood up for things like the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and all of those issues and this is one of those issues. Any of the doctrines that are in Christ's word are, are ours to contend for as belonging to us as the church that we must stand up for. It's a really, really important point to get. And so I just want to remind you of that. Go back and have a look at Peter's first sermon because it was very edifying for me and I hope for you as well. But the truth is that this truth that we're contending for, it's a singular truth that really should unite us. And we see that in Ephesians 4. We see Paul writing and saying he wants to be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called with one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. There is one. Do you know when we get to heaven, right? We're not gonna get there and find that there are all sorts of different views about the age of the earth and stuff like that. It's just not gonna be there. It's here because there are many of us that are just walking away from the simple truth that is in the word of God, right? But, but there is one truth. And we're gonna see, there is only one way. It's the way that God did it. It's the way that God told, he, told, told us he did it. It's in his word. Let's trust his word. This is an authority issue. And so it's, it's really important that we understand some of those things, but it is also, I, I do also understand that even so, you know, we're asked these questions that are really, really difficult and they do confuse us. And so the world is, is putting aside, it's either science or it's religion and that confusion reigns. And that's why I said before, I, I wanna get to the point 
that we, we can say, no, we're gonna stand solidly on the word of God, but we need to be able to diffuse and, and understand where this so-called conflict lies. And it doesn't lie in there being a contradiction, it really lies in confusion. And that's why we need definition, because people are using all these terms, natural selection, science, faith, and all of these different types of terms in, in this issue that confuse us because we've all got different definitions for them. We need to understand that definition of words and terms is really, really important. Once we get the understanding of the definitions and of words and terms, that's when we can take away the confusion and actually speak about the subject. And that's what we really need to do here because when the world talks about faith, or yours is about faith, they really do mean what that article said, blind faith. But you read, you read through scripture, wherever it's talking about faith, I, you know, go through and do it, see if you find it, but I never have, okay? I've never found it where scripture describes faith as a stab in the dark. It never does it. Faith is always something that is immensely solid. It's, uh, it's incredible the way that a scripture talks about it. And let's go to an example. I mean, we're going to go through a couple of these uh, uh, definitions right now, faith, science, natural selection, evolution. We'll just have a look at a few of them just so that we can understand the nature of this issue. But let's look at faith first. In Hebrews 11, the, the writer of Hebrews uh, writes this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Firstly, have a look at how the writer of Hebrews is describing faith. He's not describing it as blind faith, is he? It's faith is the assurance the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I love that word assurance, especially in the Greek, right? Because um, in the Greek, you've got uh, this word, hypostasis, hypostasis. Uh, it's hupo, under, and stasis from the Greek term histemi, which means to stand. It's, it's that which is under everything that we stand upon. That's, that's really what it's saying. It's that foundational substance that we stand upon to really understand what we are looking at. Do you know there's no way to come into that but through the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's, it's not something you can, you can't just go and teach somebody enlightenment to the truth. It's the drawing of the Holy Spirit, his irresistible grace and the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and through repentance and faith, we come into an illumination to see the truth and then we see, wow, this truth is amazing. This gift of faith that I have been given is, is incredible because it's enlightened me to the truth and I would expect that it is not illogical. In fact, I would expect it to be very logical and that's what you find just a little bit further down in these verses. It says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What was seen was not made out of things that are visible. I could almost say this, stuff doesn't make itself, right? And in fact, if I look at what we see in observational science today, it makes perfect sense because you know, we look around and we understand we never see life coming from non-life, do we? We never see something coming from nothing. 
We never see information coming from random chance processes. Information comes from an informer. It is always the case. You know, what if I had uh, a group of uh, letters, you know, cut up a whole heap of letters of the alphabet, put it in a bucket, threw it on the floor, and I picked up three randomly, okay? And, and somebody said, you, it, you can. You can pick up three random letters and have a word, and, 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 and people will, you know, understand it. And see, it can, information can come from random chance processes. So let's pick it up. I might pick up O-S-O. O-S-O. That's not an English word, but if you know Spanish, it means bear, Oh, you had to know the Spanish language code to understand that was a word? See what I'm saying? Information requires an informer. It requires a code. So you think about all of the information in biological systems all over the world in the DNA because the geneticists know that that DNA code is like a language code that actually means something, that makes us actually who we are, our specific features and everything. And so you realise that that information that requires an informer but there's all various sorts of information. You have to go back and go back and go back and ultimately you have to come to some sort of ultimate source of information that is self-existent and eternal and has all information to give us all of the different variations of information that we have today. Not only that, he has to be self-existent because something never comes from nothing, you know, and he has to be living and alive because you never get life from non-life. And you see this and you read in Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God. Is that not, are you not excited about being a Christian? <laughs> Seriously, right? I mean, does that not just, I'm, I'm crazy, right? Because every time this stuff happens, I just get mega excited. Because I constantly see the confirmation of the Word of God. Just in this verse we see it. Amen. Well, people are still going to look at us and say, yeah, but, but you're still talking about faith, right? And we're talking about science. And so very gently, very carefully, we need to ask them, please, please, sir, explain what you mean by science. What is science? Because we need to define this stuff. You see, the definition of science, for instance, in the Webster's uh, Universal Unabridged Dictionary is this. It's from the Latin word scientia, meaning knowledge. It just means knowledge as opposed to intuition or belief. You know, folks, as Christians, we have a starting authority for our knowledge. And I'm, no, I'm never saying throw your reason away. And none of us should, because reason is very, very important. But what determines, what is the authority, what, what is it? that is informing your reason? What's the authority that informs your reason? Because it's either God and his word or it's human autonomy. And let's understand who humans are. The Bible describes us this way, that we are full of evil and, and wickedness. You know, that's the way that Noah and his family were described after they came off the ark. God said, even though you're still full of evil and, and, and wickedness, I'm never gonna flood the whole earth again. And, and mankind, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So you can use your reason all that you want, but here's the problem, that the Bible would have us understand ourselves as being corrupt because of sin. So when we trust ourselves and our own autonomy to look at this world and come up with the right choices, we're gonna have to understand that we have corrupt hearts leading a corrupt mind looking at a corrupt world. How are you gonna come up with the right answers doing that? corrupt heart. You push the Bible aside, that's all you're left with. 
You push God's word aside, that's all you're left with, a corrupt heart leading a corrupt mind looking at a corrupt world. We are totally depraved. But God informs our reason. He's the authority for our reason as we look at his word. And so when I'm talking about science, we're talking about knowledge. And if I want to know something about the past when I wasn't there, I need somebody that has, you know, infinite knowledge about the past to help me on my way as I look around at the world. And God is omni, all, science, knowing. He's omniscient. Why would I rest on human philosophies to help me interpret the, the, the evidence before me about questions about the past? when I have the perfect history given to me in the Word of God. We need to understand there are actually different aspects of science too. You see, there's the science that we can observe and repeat and test in the present, in, in the present form hypotheses that are falsifiable or, or verifiable, form develop theories and go on to develop technologies and, and cure diseases, medicines, um, make space shuttles, make computers. Unfortunately, we make iPhones as well. All of that sort of stuff, right? And then there's a type of science that does this. It asks questions about the past. It says, well, how old is the Earth? How did those rock layers get there? What is the understanding of that geological time scale? Uh, how do I understand dinosaurs? And what about the age of the Earth? And how does the starlight get here? And all of that type of science. That's historical science. I really want us to understand the very distinct aspects of these two types of sciences, there's two different aspects of sciences as we go on, because most of the time when people are talking to us about science in the Bible, they're actually talking about this science, historical science, and for that we need starting assumptions. Have a look at this video. Have you ever heard this? Billions of years ago, there was an explosion in space, or 100,000 years ago, this happened, or that happened, or even in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Question, how does anyone know? I mean, was anybody there to observe it? Well, actually somebody was, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Check this out. First of all, we need to recognize that there is a huge difference between observational science and historical science. Both are valuable, but very different. Let's define the two real quick, shall we? Observational science is simply when we observe something and experiment to draw conclusions. It involves repeatable experimentation and observations in the present. It's through observational science that we find cures for diseases and build space shuttles, stuff like that. Now, through historical science, we consider things that happened in the past, but they cannot be checked in the same way. I mean, we don't have access to the past like we do the present because, well, it's gone, right? All we really have is speculation, or at best, circumstantial evidences of past events based on what we see in the present. That's not to say that we can't make intelligent guesses about the past or form reasonable inferences from rocks or fossils in the present, but we certainly cannot directly test our conclusions because we cannot repeat the past. Got it? So, does that mean historical science is unimportant? Not at all. Let's drop an example down here for a minute and take a look at the Eiffel Tower. You know, that 19th century Parisian monument designed by Gustave Eiffel that stands 1,063 feet tall, which was built as the entrance for the 1889 World's Fair and is still the tallest building in Paris today visited by millions of people each year? Yeah, that one. Well, guess what? Everything I just told you is true, but how do we test it? Well, applying observational science, we can, of course, observe the Eiffel Tower anytime we're in Paris. It's here in the present. Then, we can continue by testing the height and comparing it to all the other structures in Paris and confirm the claim that it is indeed the tallest building in Paris. But that's the extent of the kind of facts that can be proved by observational science in reference to this claim. How do we really know that Gustav designed it? How do we really know it was built in the 19th century as an entrance to the 1889 World's Fair? 
How do we really know how many people visited? That's all in the past. It can't be repeated. For that kind of information, we need to go outside the limits of observational science and discover what has been communicated to us through historical documents and eyewitness accounts. And furthermore, we have to believe those eyewitnesses and documents are trustworthy. The same is true when we talk about the origin of the Earth. The Earth is here. We all agree with that. So, does observational science confirm that the world was created by God, and are there trustworthy documents and eyewitness accounts that confirm it? Well, let's take the last part first. In short, what we're really asking is my original question, was anybody there to observe it? The answer is yes. God was there, and he told us how he created. He inspired people to write down his very words that became books that were compiled into a complete book called the Bible, which has been verified over and over again and has demonstrated itself to be totally trustworthy in all it claims and teaches. Even secular scholars will concede that the Bible accurately records historical events. Anyway, we have the most trustworthy revelation from the most trustworthy eyewitness. Now, what about observational science? Does it confirm the Bible? Yes. And what's extremely important to realize is the observable fact that the universe is logical and orderly. That makes sense only if its creator is logical and has imposed order on his creation. It doesn't make sense at all if the universe is just an accident of a huge explosion. Also, our minds are able to comprehend many things about the universe, and that's only possible if the creator of the mind gave us the ability and desire to explore the universe. It doesn't make sense if our brains are byproducts of chance because we couldn't trust their conclusions to ever be accurate. And lastly, it only makes sense that we can observe and repeat an experiment if the universe consistently obeys the same laws from day to day, which only makes sense if a lawgiver created it that way and upholds it. So to be bluntly honest, science itself, whether observational or historical, is only possible because God exists and the Bible is true. I could go on, but enough said. We could have almost just watched that video this morning, right, and just gone home, okay? You don't need me. But... Here's, here's the point, you know, that we do understand that there are those two types of sciences, the sciences that develop technologies and the sciences that ask questions about the past. But when we're asking questions about the past, we need an assumption. And I'm always going to come back to the assumption that God's word is the authority and I'm going to use his word to understand the history about the past that I'm looking at. Yeah? And so, you know, we don't have to be a fading fad. There are answers and, and we just need to define things properly. And when we define things, we, we take the conflict to just understanding that it's not conflict but confusion. And when we eradicate the confusion, we understand there's only confirmation. That's pretty cool. But then we would have this. There, there's a number of people who would say, but we do see in the present things changing. And they would say, in fact, they would say, we observe evolution because we observe animal changing, animals changing in this world today. And that's where we've got to go, okay, could you please define for me again, define, for instance, evolution. Tell me, what do you mean by, by evolution? And often when people are talking about evolution, they're talking about molecules to man evolution. You know, those random chance processes over millions of years where one kind of animal gains information and functionality to become another kind, and that happens over again over millions and millions of years until we get out of ape-like creatures and then eventually mankind. That's the type of evolution they're normally talking about, the goo-to-you evolution right? But evolution in the dictionary, it just means change. That's what it means, change. So yes, we do see change, but that's not, that's not what you're seeing. You're not seeing molecules to man evolution. You are seeing change, and we see that in natural selection. We do see that animals change. For instance, this isn't natural selection. This is, you know, uh, by, by human design, but we can take dogs and we can, we can, you know, through selecting out the type of information that we want out of dogs and by breeding and, and you know, experimenting, we can, we can breed, you know, exactly that right type of hunting dog that we can go out with our gun with, right? 
can't we? And we, we, we can get it right and we can get a, a new species of dog. And that's by selecting out information to leave the information that is exactly the information that we want in that dog. And that can happen through climate conditions, it can happen through uh, can, uh, competition for food, it can happen through different other various aspects, and that's natural selection. That's variation within a kind, but that's not one kind of animal becoming another whole kind of animal. That's like saying a reptile can become a bird, but to say a reptile can become a bird, they would need to develop new information that, that actually allows them to gain feathers and new bone structures that are lighter and a new respiratory system and everything that they need to be able to have to fly. And by the way, there are lots of evolutionists that believe dinosaurs actually became birds. But we never observe new information in the genome in these processes, we only, ever, we only ever observe a decrease in information. See, the natural selection and change in animals that we see is actually proof against evolution. It's not for it. And so, you know, when we understand this, uh, we, we, can, we can look at this and say, definitions really make a difference because they take away the confusion. And in the end, I have never... Here's my experience, okay? Every time I've understood the correct nature of things such as natural selection and science, I have only found complete confirmation of what I see in the Word of God. Amen. And it's really important, okay, because we have a historical faith. It's based in history. When John was writing his first letter, you know, he's writing this letter and it's, it's, um, he, he's talking about this, this history uh, that that he has in Jesus Christ. And he says, that which I have heard and seen and touched and beheld, it's a historical thing. He is part of the apostolic witness that is referring to a real history. Our faith is a historical faith, but it's not just a historical faith from the New Testament folks, it's a historical faith right back from Genesis 1. We have a real history in the world that is confirmable and reliable and shows God's pattern of salvation in that history all the way from Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation. We really do have a strong historical faith. And that's where I want to go to. I want to see the credibility. That's the third point. The credibility of biblical history relates to the credibility of the biblical message. In Genesis 1.31, the end of the creation week, after in six days that are evening and morning days that, that God created everything according to its own kind in, in uh, the biological order, and, and then on the sixth day he created human beings in his image as the pinnacle of creation. And then he looked back at his creation. Who looked back at his creation? Let's think about who's looking back at his creation. As you read through the Bible and you look at who God is, you never see him in anything other than absolutely perfect character, do you? He is totally holy and righteous and just, even in his wrath. Even in his jealousy, he does not sin. He is jealous for us because he loves us. Even, and, and he is merciful, perfectly merciful, perfectly gracious, perfectly loving. He's perfectly pure. God is absolutely and utterly perfect and holy. He is looking at his creation and he says this, very good. That probably means it's a reflection of his character. Yeah? Which means... There's probably not animals ripping each other apart, thorns and thistles. There's probably not a whole fossil record of sin, death, suffering, of death, suffering, disease, bloodshed, thorns and thistles, carnivorous activity. There's none of that yet. 
because none of that would display the perfect character of God. And God says that his creation is very good, this perfect, absolutely holy God. And so as we look around this world, though, we do see something. We see, hang on, it's not a perfect creation, right? We look around and it's pretty, I'm seeing some messed up right here, okay? We're not all perfect, right? We, we go through hard times. We do some bad stuff to each other and, and we see tsunamis and, and uh, cyclones and hurricanes and all of this bad stuff, earthquakes in Haiti. We see this stuff happening and we go, and hang on, this is not a perfect creation that I'm looking at. But then in Genesis 2.16, we'll read the history that helps us understand that. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gave us a command. He said, he said obey me. Obey me in this perfect world, in this perfect garden that I've put you into, Adam and Eve. And then... One chapter later, you read of them being tempted and falling into temptation, actually sinning and saying, no, you're not going to be my king. I'm going to be my own king. I'm going to crown myself and eat the fruit that you told me not to eat. And ever since then, we have had a corrupted world. God cursed the very world that we live in. You look at Genesis 3 and you look at the list of curses. God, God cursed the very ground of this earth. Romans 8, 22 says, Paul is writing to the Romans and he says, as a result of sin, the whole creation is groaning and travailing in pain. All of creation, everything, animals, uh, all, all life, everything, it's a corrupt world. And when we're looking out at creation, often we're not seeing, we're not seeing this perfect creation. Often we're seeing corruption and often we're even looking at judgment. Do you know that? So many people come back to me from the Grand Canyon. Oh, God's creation was absolutely beautiful when I was looking at the Grand Canyon. And I, I, always, I always sort of, you know, blow their fantasy here because I say, actually, you weren't looking at God's creation. You were looking at his judgment. He flooded the world with a global catastrophic flood because of human sin. And we see layers of rock layers and fossil record all over the world as a result of the, the judgment that God has on human sin. All over the world, we see people that look a little bit different to each other. Common characteristics in one group that are different to common characteristics in another group as if their gene pools have been isolated from each other. And then we read in Genesis 9 to 11, because of our sin and pride and wanting to build a great tower and monument to ourselves called Babel, God confused our languages and separated us into different groups where isolated us and, and we spread out that way and we see different people groups all around the world. We constantly see, constantly see evidence around the world that confirms the history that is in the word of God. And we're looking, folks, at judgment. We're looking at sin in, in, in doing that. And we've got to understand that we're a part of that. We all are because we all come from Adam. In Romans 5, for if because of one man's trespass, Adam's trespass in the Garden of Eden, he sinned against God, we all come from him, two perfect people who then sin and become imperfect don't end up having perfect children. You don't get perfect from imperfect. We've inherited sin. Every single one of us have inherited a rebellious nature against God and we all willingly rebel against him every day. And in Romans 5, it says, for by one man's trespass, death reigned. And we see that everywhere. Do you know, do you know what the leading cause of death is in America? Birth. 
birth, right? We all die. In Adam, we all, that's a consequence of sin. We all die. Much more will those who receive abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ, who came. He did not grasp onto his place on the throne, but he came in the nature of a servant, becoming nothing, born as a man. And being born as a man was obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus became one of us stepped into this real history and all of the ramifications of this real history, but he didn't sin so that he could die for our sins so that if we can have, we repent and have faith in him, we can be forgiven and have what comes after that. And that's why we, we read, yes, hallelujah, that's why we read in Colossians 1, 20. And through him, through him, is he just gonna, he's, through Christ's forgiveness, by the way, he, he, through Christ's death and resurrection of, of the cross, he does absolutely forgive us because we're the ones that corrupted this world. But there's something else that he does. He has, he has put an absolute paid stamp and a surety on the restoration of the whole creation. Amen. Yes, Thank you, Lord. Amen. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, all things. We believe as Christians in the restoration of all things. All things. So that means if thorns and thistles were a part of the curse, that they're not going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. He's going to restore all things. He's going to reverse the curse. But you know what? If you want to have those um, fossil layers before God says very good in Genesis 1, you want to allow for the millions of years, in, those fossil, in that fossil record, there's fossilized evidence of thorns and thistle. But they're, hang on, they're a result of sin. You can't have the consequences before the cause. What is God going to reverse in heaven for us in the new heavens and in the new earth. Everything as a result of sin. There's not going to be any animal, animal death. There's not going to be any thorns and thistles. There's not going to be any human death. There's not going to be any pain or suffering. Everything is going to be reversed and there's going to be a new glorious creation that we're going to be part of if we're in Christ. We don't even need millions of years. Um, what if? What if? Because people tell us that those dinosaur bones are millions of years old. What if we found dinosaur bones that were uh, so-called 68 million years old, and the dinosaurs were supposedly died out around about 65 million years ago. And what if in that dinosaur bone we found, we found something like soft tissue or blood vessels that shouldn't last that long? You are not going to believe this. When she picked up a small piece to stop the reaction by putting it in water, it stretched, and it sproined, and it moved all over the place. So we knew we had something pretty unusual. It appears to be soft tissue. When they look at neighboring parts of the bone, they're even more surprised. Out popped the blood vessels, and they were pretty incredible. And I said, I don't believe it. That's not possible. We need to do it again and again. It's one of those just goosebump-inducing scientific moments. That's all I can say. And I, they don't really happen very often. Blood vessels should not exist in fossilized bone. Many scientists believe organic molecules can't last more than 100,000 years. Yet Schweitzer's bone is 68 million years old. I think the presence of soft tissues and cells indicates there's a process going on that we didn't have a clue about. So I think it means that we have to kind of rethink the whole chemical process of making a bone turn into a fossil. It's no surprise to me to find it. It really isn't. 
Because I don't believe it's that old. About 2,000 years between us and Christ. If you look at the genealogies between Jesus and Adam, that's about 4,000 years. And he was created on day six. Take off another five days, you've got about the date. Right? <laughs> and so as you look at this, we realize, hey, I'm cool with there being soft tissue and blood vessels in dinosaur bones. It doesn't worry me. I don't have to think about the fossilization process and, and coming to new conclusions about something new. I say, hey, confirmation of the word of God right there. Praise God. He has so faithfully given us his word. Well, why do people want to do this? I mean, most people... In, in wanting to say it's science but versus faith and we're, we're in this real stuff here because honestly, people don't want a God. People don't want a creator. Otherwise, you have to answer to him. In 2008, there was this uh, bus campaign in England and we've seen similar types of campaigns here in the United States but in 2008, there was a bus campaign in England and across the buses, it said this, there is probably no God. Now, stop worrying and enjoy your life. Wow. We don't want you to have to worry about answering to somebody. Make your own rules. It doesn't matter. No problem at all. Just live however you want to live. It's not an issue because there's probably no God. Don't worry about having to answer to anybody. It's just total and utter anarchy. And that's how that worldview should, should end. It should end in total and utter anarchy. But how does God's word tell us to use that he is the creator? That's what I want to know. How does God's word help us to understand the aspects of seeing the divine power in creation? Well, I want to share some with you. This isn't in your insert, but let me just read it out to you. If you're in affliction and you're wondering, how am I ever going to get through this? Psalm 102, 24 to 25. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. You have the power to get me through this and sustain me. Or Job, he doesn't understand what is happening to him. And, and he, he's asking God these questions and God says, listen to my wisdom, Job. You know, your answer is in my wisdom to understand what is happening to you. And here is how you understand my wisdom. Where were you? Job 38, four to six. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have any understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Go with me to Amos chapter four. In Amos, you've got this situation where, where Israel, Amos is from Judah, he's up and he's prophesying to Israel and they're in a pretty good time. It's the split kingdom, they haven't been taken away yet, they haven't been defeated by Assyria yet, but in their history they have gone through some bad stuff nevertheless, but they're in a pretty good economical time. It's sort of like what we're in. We're, we're feeling pretty cushy here in America and we're thinking everything is okay. And so he's trying to help them to understand, listen, you're forgetting about God, judgment is coming. And you see all through chapter four, this happened to me, yet you did not return to me. This happened to you, yet you did not return to me. Things like locust plagues and famines and people coming in and, uh, and attacking them, yet you did not return to me, yet you did not return to me, yet you did not return to me, right through to verse 11. And in verse 12, he says this, therefore I thus will I do, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And who is it that they are to prepare to meet? For behold, he forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought. He who makes the morning darkness, who treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts is his name. 
God is powerful. We do need to answer to him. And what he's saying is, return to me, return to me, return to me. He's giving us gracious warnings. Do you realize all of those warnings are grace? He's graciously giving us warnings. Turn to me and turn to me now before you meet me when it's too late. That's like Isaiah when he said, Isaiah says, you say Isaiah, seek the Lord. (laughs) Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name while he is near. Warnings. Folks are not harsh, they're gracious. And in, and in chapter five, he says in verse five and in verse six, seek me and live, seek the Lord and live. And who is it that we can seek who will give us life, who's got the power to give us life? Lest he break out with fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with, uh, with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness of the earth, this is who you are to seek. He who made Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkness the day into night. God has the power to save when we seek him. Who is this God? This is what I want to leave you with. Who is this God? that we need to seek for salvation, repent and come to him and he will give us our salvation. Who is he? So often we think of Jesus walking around with, um, with the tunic and little kids hanging off it, right? You know? And he is a lovely Jesus, okay? This is Jesus. And Colossians 1 tells us that and that's where I wanna finish this morning. Let me read to you Colossians 1. Just read you this, and it's the answer. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. He, Jesus, just soak this in. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile himself, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's Jesus Jesus who became one of us and died on the cross and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the creator who became the saviour. Turn to him now or meet him when it's too late. He is graciously, gracious. Do you know Christ? Because he is graciously right now giving you warning. He is graciously giving you warning. Don't wait till it's too late. Meet him now, repent, come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the powerful creator who has not only the power to judge you, but the power to forgive you and keep you for all of eternity in his presence. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you, Father, for sending your son. Thank you that you are the creator of all that there is and that you have all power to judge. And Lord, we fear you because we know that your power is infinite and amazing. You you are all powerful. 
You are omnipotent. And Lord, you are great in your grace in that you have power to save us. You had power to give your life and take it up again. Jesus, you rose from the dead. You are seated at the throne of the right hand of the throne of God. You're seated in victory. And in you, Lord, in you, Lord, we cry out, save us. In you, Lord, we cry out, forgive us. And in you, Lord, we cry out, give us an eternity with you where we might worship in your presence forevermore. Lord, I pray that we would know you and love you and worship you for all of eternity. Amen.